Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Listen on DAB Smart Speaker, the Times Radio app, or at times.radio. Coming up in our big thing, why do leakers leak? We speak to some journalists on the receiving end of leaks and someone who used to work in number 10 and tried to stop leaks happening. First, though, it's Monday, so our columnist panel, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. So I suppose we should talk about uh, Dominic Cummings. Well, not even. Let's not talk about. Let's 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 put Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane to one side. Is there really a a Tory rebrand that can work? Um, what should Boris Johnson be thinking about while holed up in his loft, Libby? Well, I was, I was Dominic Cummings. I, 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 you distracted me over the Dominic Cummings new job. I assumed he was going to be hired as a shock jock for a midnight show on Times Radio. <laughs> uh, well, as long as, he's, as long as he's got his not got his eye on ten till one, I don't mind. <laughs> well, I think uh, uh, as to the, the reset, um, I think it would be not a bad thing if we could reset the governing party away from infighting and this business of ignoring the backbenchers who Cummings dismissed as thick and the civil servants he despised. We need we need to reset. All sorts of things. I mean, I, I I know you hate the phrase levelling up, but I actually do actually think levelling up is a very important concept. And I would like to see Boris Johnson reset as well, back to the commentator we read in past years, who came across, despite all the rash overstatements, as somebody cheerful, uh, fairly commonsensical, optimistic, very libertarian, um, the, the nervy, nervy, anxious post-Covid uh, Carrie Subcomings Boris has not been a treat to observe. So I think we need a, a personal reset in the Prime Minister. His ideas, whatever they are, solidifying and making a little bit clearer. And um, just a sense of, of cooperation and collaboration within government, because I don't think that ripping it to pieces from the inside, however many faults there were in it, was, was a very good thing. And I think that was what Cummings mainly represented. See, I think, the mo- I think the most interesting thing that you said there is his ideas, whatever they are, and my slight suspicion, and I've written a piece for um, I saw uh, the it. Times Red Box <laughs> today, is that there isn't anything there. And part of the reason, you know, all of the kerfuffle in acres of um, uh, column inches over the weekend were all about who said what to whom and slightly weirdly who, who had meals and who mashed Swedes and turnips and whatever with the Prime Minister. Not a lot about disagreement over policy, in part because there isn't any policy they're really disagreeing about. Um, and, and I don't know what you think about this, Rachel, there isn't, a, there isn't a Boris Johnson project, is there? And so it's sort of slightly odd, actually, all the talk of Carrie versus Lee and 
Dominic versus Allegra. Um, the Prime Minister was slightly absent in all that. He doesn't know, really seem to think anything. You're so right. That is the vacuum at the heart of this story. And actually, I think the Boris project is getting to or was getting to number 10. The Boris project is power, you know, getting it and holding it. And that's very different to actually being prime minister and running the country and managing a government effectively. Uh, and, you know, the the whole vote leave crew represented by Dom and Lee, um, the sort of Brexit bully boys, um, was about creating dividing lines, this permanent sense of campaign, picking fights with everyone to define yourself against things, um, rather than actually delivering for the people, uh, including the people in those sort of northern seats that um, Libby wants to level up to, which is absolutely right. Uh, and there's, a, I think the pr real problem is why does Boris Johnson want to be prime minister? Yeah. What does he want to achieve? What's the purpose of this government beyond actually just being in power? Uh, and that's, you know, the, the whole slogan at the election was get Brexit done. Well, you know, it, it's been done, you know, it's going to happen. What next? Um, and all the sort of talk of levelling up is fine, but actually how are you going to deliver that? You know, there was a promise to sort out social care on his first day in Downing Street that's gone absolutely nowhere. And I think in the end, all the talk of reset and rebrand is irrelevant if they don't actually make people's lives practically better it's no good talking about it you actually have to do it and i'm not sure they've got a plan to do it so far that's the thing and Libby, I was, when i was writing that piece i was sort of thinking if boris johnson suddenly left office now what would he be kicking himself that he hadn't done and apart from staying in downing street longer i genuinely don't know what it is it seems to me that what he, the main thing that the, the main failing has been I mean there's nothing wrong with being a sort of cheery grandstanding figurehead which I think is what he's quite good at yeah. if only he would surround himself with highly competent people <laughs> even if they disagreed with him sometimes you know even if they you know there are there are very very good people within the conservative party on the back benches as as well as you know ex ministers and so on and he did not surround himself with the best he surrounded himself with a lot of poodle yes men um, um, and, um, you know, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak is, is the glowing exception to this. And people say that he's sometimes at odds with the prime minister. But there are so many wet, useless, incompetent people around him. And I wouldn't mind him just being a figurehead with no ideas if he had a lot of very practical people around him who would make ordinary things work properly. And that whole business about levelling up, um, I, 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 it's not that I, I don't like the idea of it, uh, Libby. I think it's a very good idea. But I think just noticing that some parts of the North are a bit grim doesn't in all of itself make you a political genius. It's coming up with what you, what you might do about it is the, is the problem, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is where you need the good people who, who really knuckle down and work at the detail. And there's been some quite good working at detail in small things like the, the business of bringing, bringing the homeless indoors in the last lockdown, which, by the way, is now kind of rather fading away. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there have been good things done. There are good people. We have talented people. We have public spirited people. Boris Johnson does not really have the capacity to recognise who they are and promote them and give them their head and let them sometimes disagree with him and not get on well with his pet Cummingses or whoever his, his current <laughs> pet is. It's it's really important that, that you have good people around you and then you can be your grandstanding, jolly mayor of London figureheady figure, which is all Boris is mainly good at.
He's oddly insecure, isn't he? So you need to have people in your cabinet who can challenge you, who might be rivals, but who are on your team. And then you're all working together for the sake of the country. Mm. There was this sense that everyone in Downing Street seemed to be working basically for what was best for them rather than what was best for the country, uh, including to some extent Boris Johnson, actually. And so all that faction fighting, all that sort of wasted energy looked so self-indulgent, particularly when you had those, you know, 50,000 COVID cases and then, you know, Brexit deadline looming, economic crisis coming down the track. And it just felt like it wasn't really about what was the national interest. It was all about self-interest. Is it uh, sexist to be critical of Carrie Simons and uh, Allegra Stratton? <laughs> you go first, Rachel. Well, just I obviously you can criticise women without being sexist, but a lot of the language and the way in which they were described, I think, was sexist. So you know, talking about princess nut nuts or whatever, um, there was definitely a sort of swaggering machismo around Boris Johnson which he must have tolerated. That doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, and a kind of, it was part of this bish-bash-bosh approach to government. Uh, it was bash everything over the head, including women. And I know definitely a lot of um, the female MPs talk about this toxic masculinity around Downing Street. Uh, and there was that sense of, you know, we're all this band of brothers together. Uh, so it's it's not necessarily sexist to criticise a woman, but I do think there was a sort of culture of misogyny. There is, though, um, Libby, it just seems quite extraordinary to me that um, finally the, uh, the, the the bullies, the unelected bullies have been removed uh, from Downing Street by two other people unelected who've um, got them the sack. Um, they just happen to be two women in this case. Well, at least one of the women is salaried and, um, uh, you know, official. And what annoys me about the, the, the Carrie Simons business is, yes, I don't, of course, every every partner has some influence, but it should not be obvious, it should not be overt, it should not be all over Downing Street, um, because uh, this is somebody who is not only unelected, but unsalaried and unsackable. You know, I want somebody who can at least at some stage be dragged in front of a parliamentary select committee. You know, I think the, the partner thing is is an unfair advantage. You know, it's it's taking an unfair advantage because you're sharing a bed with the prime minister. And that that is, you know, all these sort of rumours saying that, oh, well, he had to have Allegra, well, she'd have gone crackers on him. You know, you it's not a healthy kind of influence in politics. You know, where public money and public affairs and public safety is concerned, you want people who are properly hired, either elected or appointed, salaried and sackable. I suppose that's the thing. And part of me was thinking when everyone was getting very <coughs> cross in defence of uh, Carrie Simons over the weekend, I did think if 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 Cherie Blair had fired uh, Alistair Campbell, that would have been quite a big news story. Um, uh, you know, if Samantha Cameron had, had done the same, you know, if, if, if the shots really were being called by the... Prime Minister's other half. That's a big story regardless of, of the politics, Rachel. The only thing is that, uh, you know, Philip May was incredibly influential. Um, so was Dennis Thatcher to probably a lesser extent. But, I mean, how do we know that Carrie Simons was behind all this? Probably because the male 
characters involved briefed that. Was she more influential, I don't, influential I don't than think Philip May? Friends, I'm not sure. I'm not was. sure that friends of <laughs> Carrie Simons and Allegra Stratton are any less keen on briefing the papers <laughs> than friends of Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings. Let's move on though, because um, uh, I want to talk about Libby's column in the in the paper today, which isn't on um, uh, politics at all. It's on the. Um, oh, I think you're right to call it an unhealthy obsession uh, with serial killers, Libby. Yes, well, the, the business of, of, um, of Sutcliffe and the, fa the excellent fact that all news outlets felt they should name all the victims, you know, and that they were the point and they were the ones we should be thinking about, uh, was what I was writing. What I've been interested in is what happened uh, below the line among readers. Um, the enormous interest in the line I had about... Uh, how people comment on the business of women being out alone at night as if it was always a foolhardy thing to do, like being a line tamer or, you know, <laughs> bungee jumping, and assuming uh, this, this assumption um, from some of the readers that any girl who's uh, alone at night anyway is, you know, making an unnecessary risk and is drunk and probably out for fun and so on. And I just think of all the working women, nurses and cleaners and factory and office workers with long walks home in the dark night, especially this time of year, especially in the north, and it's about policing and CCTV and proper lighting and proper education for men and generally making the streets feel warm and human and safe. I was on Reclaim the Night Marchers once or twice, you know, early prototype ones before the, um, uh, the Sutcliffe murders happened. And I just think that this sense that it's women's fault. I mean, somebody this morning responded to my article saying, I dare say Libby Purvis leaves her house unlocked with all her jewellery on display through a window. <laughs> well, a, I don't have any jewellery. And B, why should women's persona, women's bodies, be regarded if they go out alone as jewellery up for grabs? You know, all those things just need dealing with still. And I think our preoccupation with serial killers is, is unhealthy. And it's often sort of gloating, sort of, you know, well, these women, they may think they've got jobs, they may think they're running the world now, but get them up a dark alley and they're all the same. There is always a little touch of that lurking around in the background of this stuff, and it needs calling out. But it's also this, this sort of obsession with, uh, give, as um, Libby writes, uh, Rachel, about sort of giving serial killers nicknames, you know, Dr Deaths, you know, Jack the Ripper is... Uh, very um, historic example. Um, and then also the sort of um, real-life uh, uh, documentaries and even, you know, films and TV shows which which dwell on all this stuff. That It's, it's all just a bit grim, isn't it? Mm. It's a sort of ghoulish fascination. It's the, the sort of real equivalent of a horror film, isn't it? That we're, people seem to be gripped by every detail of these horrific stories. Um, but I think the point Libby makes about male power is really interesting. So there was the BBC documentary about Oscar Pistorius recently, you know, describing him as a sort of remarkable athlete and praising all his sporting achievements. Yeah. And the trailer didn't even mention his victim, you know, uh, Reva Steekamp, who uh, was shot to death by him. So y y there is this sense of somehow glorifying violence while not really... Uh, empathising sufficiently with the victims. And it is a kind of ghoulish, gothic, horror story thing. Um, I, c I find it really hard to read those cases, but I've, I mean, I just, I've never even watched a horror film. I'm slightly wimpish. But I do think there, <laughs> there is a sort of, also a sort of power balance issue about the often female victims. 
Uh, well, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Sexist attitudes of the Sutcliffe era live on is Libby Purvis's column in the Times today, uh, and Rachel's column will be in the. Can you give us a sneak preview yet, Rachel? As to what you're going to write in your column on tomorrow? I'm writing about this, whether there is going to be a change of culture now, and the sort of now the Brexit oh, bully boys have gone. But we'll see. In the end, it's up to Boris <laughs> Johnson. <laughs> You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jolly. If you like what you've heard so far, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And you can listen to even more on my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Tune in on DAB Radio online via your smart speaker or via the Times Radio app. If you still need a bit more convincing, not to worry, there's more Times Red Box Podcast on the way. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and now it's time to bring you the big thing from my Times Radio show. Now then, which do you prefer? Red sauce, brown sauce, or senior Downing Street sauce? These sauces and leakers get more column inches than most cabinet ministers uh, these days. Some of them are serious. Lockdown policy details get splashed across the front pages ahead of time. Some are just colourful, often gratuitous, anonymous sniping and gossip. But what is the point of leaks? Who leaks and why? And what can a government do to stem the flow? Do leak inquiries ever work? That's what we're going to be doing uh, now on Times Radio, unpicking uh, the mechanics of leaks. And I'm joined by someone who's often on the receiving end of leaks, is Deputy Political Editor of The Times, uh, Steve Swinford. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Matt. Uh, well, I should reassure you to begin with, I'm not going to ask you to name your sources, obviously. Um, because, uh, well, I suppose, well, all right, then, why shouldn't you name your sources? Some people will see to this. Why is everything done anonymously? Why shouldn't you name your sources? So um, just to start with the question of why, why do, why are we interested in links? Why do we want to know about weeks? So I see my job, Matt, and I think you, you sort of see it the same, which is you want to put readers, you want to give them as much information about what is going on, and you really want to put them in the room where it happens. You want to tell them what's going on in Cabinet, what's going on elsewhere. And if you revealed the identity of your sources, you would be completely unable to do that because they would therefore be subject to leak inquiries and sacked. So my job, I've always seen it as a kind of public service, partly to try to tell people what is going on in government. OK, so that's that's what you want to get out of it. But why do those people who leak leak to you? Uh, so sometimes leaks are deliberate, but oftentimes they're part of a kind of. So my job on a daily basis here is talking to people. And I have many, many, many conversations throughout a day. And the whole job is basically one long conversation. And often from someone, let's say, who's possibly one of the least powerful people in Westminster, I might pick up a little tidbit of information about something going on behind the scenes, about a meeting that's coming up or a policy that's being discussed. Then in my next conversation, I can use that and say, I've heard this is going on. And people will say, yeah, that's going on. So often the motivation is not out of malice. It's not out of political manoeuvring, but actually it's just the trade in information and gossip that is part of the heart and soul of Westminster. And in fact, it's often part of the heart and soul of every workplace outside of Westminster. It's just that obviously 
this matters particularly because these are the people in power. It is a bit like sort of putting together a jigsaw sometimes. You know, there is this sort of slight temptation when someone sees a story on, the, you know, that you've written on the front of the Times, that X thing is going to happen. It's, oh, number 10 have briefed that out. So giving the impression that, you know, an authorised person has told you some information. And actually, you've spent many hours, like you said, picking up half a thing and uh, then trying to stand it up by speaking to more people. Um, and trying to sort of, um, exp you know, uh, and sort of piece it all together, if you like. But you're right that sometimes, I mean, from a journalist point of view, there's a little bit of subterfuge. I mean, I remember when I worked at the Independent on Sunday, I had someone who every week would leak me the grid for the following week, which is hugely useful for Sunday paper because it's all about <laughs> looking ahead to what was uh, what was happening. But just knowing that X minister was going to be doing making an announcement on on Tuesday, I could phone that minister or their special advisor or press officer and say, "Oh, I'm just doing up a story on your announcement. What's your official line on this? Or what's the?" And from that, you could convince them you were already in the loop on it, and then you sort of piece together a jigsaw. So it wasn't that anyone was, you know, there was no formal process of, "Oh, we're going to give the independent on Sunday that story," because nobody ever did that. Uh, but you had to uh, you had to sort of piece it together um, yourself. And in terms of um, a lot of criticism, particularly on social media, of journalists who report what is coming out of Number 10 or sources, uh, if you like. And, you know, you particularly see this criticism of, you know, directed at people like Laura Koonsberg and, and Robert Peston. They, they, they are just stenographers uh, that, you know, pushing out lines, particularly when it's a spokesman or a, or a source quote. Um, I mean, my view of actually quite a lot of journalism is stenography. It's just writing down what people said and putting it in the paper. That is that is news. But what do you say to the, those people who say, well, that isn't the job of, of, uh, of journalists? I think it is fundamentally the job of journalists, which is to find out, not to have judgment, not to say this is wrong or that is wrong, but to find out what is going on and tell readers about it. And that involves often, as we had last week with the extraordinary uh, announcement that Dominic Cummings and uh, Lee Kane, the director of communications, were going, it involves picking through various different versions of events which are completely contradictory sometimes and you have to just present readers with what different people are saying and try to navigate through that but if you don't listen to all parties and if you don't talk to everyone then you end up with a kind of biased version of events so i think part of our job is literally picking through different accounts of events that are going on behind closed doors and i think that you know, we, our, our listeners and our readers have a right to know what is going on behind closed doors. They elected these people. This is the government. And if the government had its way, you'd never hear anything about half of the extraordinary debates that are going on in government about big policies. So bringing those to readers and bringing readers in on that discussion, I think, is key and can have influence on policy going forwards. OK, well, let's bring in Phil Webster, uh, former political editor of The Times, uh, who, who, so as a result, could be slightly more open about where his uh, stories came, <laughs> came from. Morning, Phil. Morning, morning, morning. For listeners who don't know, how long were you political editor of the Times? I was political editor 18 years and I was on the Times for 43 years. So, um, yeah. And, and I was in the, uh, in the Commons for about 38, 39 years. So you saw quite a lot of uh, the Dominic Cummings of our day come and go. But just explain your process of sources uh, and how you might have gone about getting stories and how do you think technology changed that over the years? Technology has changed it a, a huge amount. I mean, even at the end of my time as political editor, Twitter became possibly my first main source of news. I think, uh, I think the pr process that Stephen has described happened back in, in, in my day. It was different. 
I think ministers themselves were a little bolder in those days. They did the leaking themselves. I think these days, certainly towards the end of my time, ministers were very happy to say to their special advisor or their chief press officer in the department, let the Times know this, let the Guardian know this, let the Telegraph know this. In, in my early days, the ministers themselves were quite happy to do it. It often happened at lunches. It often happened at the lobby lunch was a great institution. I know it still is. In those days, I think the <laughs> lobby lunch was a little bit different. Uh, more drink was taken in the early days in the in the 80s. Then this thing happened of uh, the nation becoming more health conscious towards the end of the 80s. <laughs> and ministers stopped drinking. It, it was a, a bit of a blow for the lobby in those days. Because they might sometimes, after a couple of glasses of wine, they might tell you things they hadn't necessarily meant to. What sticks in your mind of, what's the be- what do you think was the best leak you had over lunch? Oh, God. Uh, there were lots. There were lots. But... Uh, Two I can mention because the the leakers are are no longer with us, sadly. Um, There was one uh, occasion when the Attorney General, Sir Michael Havers, he's the father of uh, Nigel Havers, the the actor, he came into Rule's Restaurant in in Covent Garden. That was a favourite haunt of politicians and journalists in those days, rather traditional restaurant. And uh, he bustled in from a uh, cabinet committee meeting, rather seemed a bit um, flustered, a uh, bit annoyed. Uh, we got him a drink rather quickly. Uh, and uh, he had been in a cabinet discussion about an event uh, way back, the Spycatcher Affair. It was a book all about MI- MI6 and un- unmasking Soviet moles. And the discussion had not gone his way. Uh, we were surrounded at other tables by other politicians, other journalists. And to our horror, I was with Charles Rice from the Evening Standard. To our horror, he suddenly pulled out of his briefcase a cabinet paper. Oh, wow. And, uh, and put it in front of himself. And we, we Charles and I, were peering over <laughs> towards him, trying to consign as much as possible to memory. <laughs> and... Um, I saw the magic word restricted at the top and I thought, oh, my God. Anyway, there was a great story in this. Our problem, our problem was that other people had seen us and Ah. other people had seen this rather strange event. So we had to sit on it for four or five days and then we ran the story. I know we splashed the times with it. and Sir Michael was never unmasked. Sir Michael Havers, the Attorney General. <laughs> until now, until now. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, that is, um, uh, I mean, actually, the, the, I suppose the point is Steve's still there. Steve, part of the problem at the moment is there is no lunching, is there? So, I mean, I do know that you are, your phone is one of the hardest working phones in, in uh, <laughs> Westminster showbiz because you're on it constantly, but partly because you can't go meet anyone. So you do have to sort of make all these, and it's slightly more difficult, isn't it? Basically, you can't just phone up, phone someone up and say, do you want to leak me a cabinet paper in the same way that that might emerge over lunch? It's all changed under lockdown, Matt. I mean, my fundamental philosophy with journalism is that if you're not talking to people, then you're not going to get stories. You're not going to find things out because every conversation everyone knows something right everyone has a story in them normally and in westminster normally one of the best ways to get stories is just hanging about you go down to portcullis house you sit there an mp comes past a minister comes past and before you know it you've got a kind of pocket full of stories you can come back to the office with and that doesn't tend to happen anymore all the mps and all the ministers are consigned to their offices so it is harder But I guess on the other side, we are in a more extraordinary political period where the decisions being taken in this place are bigger and matter more. And therefore, there are more kind of moving targets, if you like. There are more stories to go at. 
um, which which kind of balances out the sheer lack of people that you often see on a day-to-day basis. Um, Steve, I know that previously stories you've written have been the subject of leak inquiries and then talk of knocking on doors of cabinet ministers and so on. Does anyone ever just ask you if you uh, want to cough up who the, who the leaker was? That's never happened and they ne- never go to you, but they do go through ministers' phones, ministers' phones' records, they talk to all the officials, they talk to all the advice. I mean, it's a, a leak inquiry, is an, as Katie will tell you, it is an immense amount of work for the government. They have special security people that do it um, and they kind of create these kind of big fan charts of who spoke to who, when, um, and I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It sounds like a, a massively painful process and often it's inconclusive. You can't prove definitively who leaked someone because lots of people are talking to lots of people so it's very very hard for them but you've also got a prime minister who says things like you must get to the bottom of this leak you absolutely must i'm furious about it how did it come out so that that is a, a difficult balance for them all the time so that's uh, steve and phil whose job it was to try and prize leaks out of people well what about if you're on the other side trying to stop leaks happening and even possibly sometimes finding yourself on the receiving end of a leak inquiry in a moment we'll hear from katie perrier who was a former director of communications in Number 10, who uh, basically tried to stop leaks happening, uh, but also uh, was investigated as part of a leak inquiry. But first, of course, if we're talking about the, how politics really works, uh, yes, Minister, has the definitive explanation. If the culprit is a civil servant, it would be unfair to publish. Politicians are there to take the rap. Um, if it was a politician, he still can't publish it because he'll disclose all the other leaks he knows of by his colleagues. But chiefly they can't publish because most leaks come from... Number ten. <laughs> the ship of state, Bernard, is the only ship that leaks from the top. The brilliant uh, BBC's uh, Yes Minister. So, Katie Perrier, we should explain, you were Director of Communications um, the first year of Theresa May being in number ten. So just explain, explain what happens with leaks, you try to stop them happening, and then what happened when you were the subject of a leak inquiry? So, yes, keeping leaks uh, inquiries... Uh, uh, out of cabinet room is really, really difficult because um, you're trying to form policy, you're trying to come up with decisions before they're fully fleshed out, and someone thinks it's a good idea to go out there and tell everybody before you're ready. So you get bounced into stuff you don't want to get bounced into. But uh, in terms of a leak inquiry at number 10, they were pretty much useless during my time that I was there. And the reason why they were useless is because you kind of roughly know who's leaked, or you have a, you have a short list of who's leaked before they've done it, because in a way, in a way um, only a few people have something to gain from a leak. So either someone is showing off how powerful they are or they want to, to ruin someone else's idea and they want to bury it before it's even started or even off the ground. And so um, I had people turn up to my office and say, we believe that you possibly could be a leaker and therefore we'd like to see your phone and we'd like to understand how you know people. And this particular leak was to a journalist. They said, do you know this journalist? And I said, yes. Have you spoken to this journalist? And I said, yes. Well, recently, yeah, yeah, I've spoken to a journalist recently. And I had to point out to the person that comes to interview me that my job title was the Director of Communications for Number 10 Downing Street, which meant I had to speak to journalists. So <laughs> thinking that they suddenly uncovered this miracle and they you know, found the leaker after the first morning of the leak inquiry was a little bit far-fetched. They, they looked at my phone, they did a couple of swipes, gave it back to me and said, uh, thank you very much for your time. And I really freaked out and said, I think this is a total waste of time. I think I know roughly who's leaked this. You know, can you go and actually do a proper leak inquiry or don't bother at all? I've never really known a leak inquiry to find the culprit and deal with the culprit. During the time Theresa May tried to deal with Gavin Williamson at number 10, 
we never really knew the end of that, whether or not, you know, that was the case and he had leaked something. And so um, it goes round and round and round in circles. You don't really uh, get to the end of it. And so that's why people feel they have confidence to do it. But Steve was rightly pointed out, sometimes um, it isn't conspiracy, it's cock-up. People say things they shouldn't do, really. And somebody lets something slip. Steve, is the, is the key point that um, the role of the journalist is sort of put things in context, to think, why, why has this person leaked me this? I need to get a bit... Because sometimes we've seen... Uh, obviously, you wouldn't find this in the Times, but other source, other papers might report a leak and it's a partial account of something or it's not quite the full picture and it's because the person who's leaked it is trying to get, you know, one story up and running. That, that's why you then have to spend your entire afternoon speaking to a load of other people to try and flesh it out and, and complete that jigsaw puzzle. That, and that is exactly what the Times is about, Matt. It, it is about getting that balance. So I might have one fact and one interpretation of events from another, which has a kernel of truth in it, but it, by the end of the afternoon, that fact might have turned into something completely different. And I think the very best leaks are the ones where people are completely clueless as to where it's come from. So my, my brilliant colleague, Francis Elliott, last week, our political editor, wrote a story that has changed number 10 for good. He revealed that uh, Lee Kane was going to get the top job as chief of staff. Now, I've no idea where that came from, um, and it caused a massive ruction. It led to kind of Carrie Simmons intervening, saying he can't get that job. And ultimately, Lee Kane and Dom Cummings left the building. I don't know where that came from. And I, I wouldn't like to even guess. But I know that people on both sides are blaming each other. People on one side are saying it was an attempt to kind of bounce Lee into getting that job and to strengthen both Lee's position in number 10. And that's where the leak was from. And then on the other, they're saying it was an attempt to stop that process and to completely undermine them. So and, and we will never know where that came from. <laughs> and that is the very best kind of leak, if you like. The, 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 it's just told straight and has full context and no one's any the wiser as to the source of it. Um, but is utterly, utterly explosive. That, that, sort of, that sort of sums up Westminster, where you have sources and leaks about the source of a leak. Um, and that, you know, and West, <laughs> you know, and Westminster just eats itself. Um, Phil Webster, bringing you uh, back in, do you think there's been a change in, in sort of Westminster culture? Is there more, more sort of low-level leakery? It's one thing that if a cabinet minister is unhappy about a, a, you know, a policy decision, which they think might be bad, uh, for the country, if you like. That's one thing. If it's just sort of, it feels like, even in my comparatively short time of 15 years of being in Westminster, there has been more of the sort of low-level bitching, for a better word, between uh, ministers and spads and all that sort of thing. Um, do you yep. think that that has been, a ch and actually quite a lot of it, doesn't, it's, it's, a, it's so popular rather than, than actually affecting, you know, how the country is run? Yeah, I, the, undoubtedly that has, that has been the case. Uh, it's become far more personal than it was. Um, ministers these days are quite happy to allow their spads uh, and other advisers to put the boot in, if you like. When I read a, 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 one of those brilliant write-throughs that Stephen and Francis do on a Saturday and Tim on a Sunday, um, when I read those, I'm sitting there thinking, right, I, I know who did that, I know who did that, I know who did that, but I sort of know that game. There is far more of that going on. There have been uh, times in the past where editors have said to their political staffs, you know, can't we, put a, can't we put a name to these people? Can't we put a name to these people? Should we be allowing them free reign to go out and slag off their their colleagues and it is an awkward one for journalists you know it can get very very personal and it's very easy 
for the leaker if he trusts the journalist, which he always has to, and the, and the journalist will never reveal a source, to go out there and be pretty nasty. Whether it's, whether it's anything to do with the uh, technological changes, the fact that these things can get out so quickly, um, Twitter has often, as I said earlier, has now become sort of the first source of news. If people know their stories, they're not going to wait until the morning paper. They're going to get it out there on Twitter just to show they were first. And I suppose social media makes it far more easier to, to, to slag off your opponents on a policy issue or a personal issue. I think politicians generally leak either to advance the policy they're pushing, either to advance themselves or sometimes they're just leakers. They love leakers. They like to show they're in the know. They just love leaking. They can't help themselves. And um, we love those. Uh, we, as journalists, we like those people who tell us what's going on. And we obviously have to bounce them off others. We have to check them out. But people who are prepared to um, tell us what's going on, God, that's the business we're in. Uh, Kate, there were some suggestions over the past couple of weeks that when they were trying to get to the bottom of Steve's story about the uh, the forthcoming lockdown in England, that um, Downing Street was was coming up with the idea of of giving different ministers differently worded documents in the hope that then when one wording ended up in the papers that would prove who was responsible. Did you ever did you ever contemplate going that far when you were director of communications in Number Ten? No, it's very it's ridiculous. I mean, it's never something that you can really uh, prove. And sometimes journalists don't write it word for word. They do it uh, in the phrase that so they can't identify their source so easily. But it comes down to what kind of government do you want to run and what kind of cabinet do you want to run? You know, people forget in this day and age, I think, I'm sounding quite old fashioned here, Matt, but you are meant to be able to, you're meant to go there to do that job to serve. Uh, you serve your master, you serve your prime minister. I don't even like special advisors being on Twitter. You know, I don't want to know what they think. I want to know what their ministers think. And I just think that it's, it's become a bit of a celebrity world that we've all entered in. You know, it's, it's showbiz for ugly people, as they like to call it. Um, <laughs> and I think we should go back, try and go back. I don't know if the genie's out of the bottle now, but we should try and go back to what the job entailed and what you are there to do. Now, if, if the cabinet is full of leakers, then what you then forget is theatre cabinet where everything is organised in advance, the Prime Minister's already made up his mind, and you can't really use it as an opportunity to speak truth to power because if you're a cabinet member and you raise something slightly awkward, one of your colleagues is going to go and tell your friends at the Times or any other newspaper very soon afterwards. And so it actually has more of a corrosive effect than you might think. And that's the damage that you try to stop, not just because you don't want a journalist finding out a little bit of tittle-tattle or something. Do you think, uh, just given the events over the weekend, do you think that, given that Dominic Cummings was sort of better known than most members of the Cabinet, his departure might dial down the soap opera a bit and uh, we'll get fewer of those stories of, you know, what he's been particularly interested in or which minister he's unhappy about. And, and that might, actually the Prime Minister might be able to try and get some control back? I really hope so. I think that Boris's um, push this week, you know, we've seen... People go on TV programmes that have been banned up until now. Cabinet ministers are now allowed to go and speak to Piers Morgan or whoever it might be. Um, you know, this is all just silly stuff. But actually, they need to signal that there has been a change. That kind of reaching out to backbenchers, uh, engaging with various little policy groups that people have got themselves together on, because they're so frustrated. Number 10 has been impenetrable in the last year. Whether you are an international business employing hundreds of thousands of people, or whether or not you are a backbench MP that has got a good idea, or can see a car crash slowly coming towards you and no one is listening when you're trying to identify it and point it out. I hope this has been a moment of change where suddenly, you know, that door is 
is open a little bit more and people are a little bit more uh, engaging uh, because they're all meant to be in it for the same reason, the right reason. They are not meant to be. You know, in a political party, your opposition is across the benches. It's not on the same side. We forget that sometimes. Really good to speak to you. Katie Perry, their former director of communications uh, in number 10, uh, talking about uh, trying to stop leaks and two of the great... Uh, uh, recipients of leaks. Um, uh, Steve Swinford, uh, now Deputy Political Editor of The Times, and also Phil Webster, former Political Editor of The Times. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 